Welcome to another episode of the Christian Combatives Podcast. Today we are hosted once again by our friends over at Christcord, the Christian Discord server. To give them a visit, go to discord.gg forward slash Christian, discord.gg forward slash Christian. In this episode, we discuss the use and prevalence of violence, sex, and politics in movies. We discuss the relationship between Christians and the government in regards to marriage, education, and even teaching Christianity in schools. Later on, Sola talks about the church fathers calling women inferior and how that idea may be misunderstood. This episode was actually a continuation of the conversation in the last episode. The recording here begins as Sola Ecclesia and Stigma are discussing the mature themes in movies. Sola points out that one of the few movies without overt sexuality in the past few years was actually the R-rated film Joker. So, let's jump right into that conversation. I can't remember who said it, but he said everything when it comes to, uh, you know, violence, sex, or any of that stuff, it all has to be in service of the story, and it has to be, it has to make sense, and it has to be done with a level of tact and a level of, uh, what should I say, a moral backbone, basically. Like, you can't just be gratuitous there for the, for the, for the fun of it. And, you know, Joker, it doesn't have any sexuality in it, which is, like, somehow unusual for a modern comic book movie. Like, you know, there's nothing sexual in it. I, I, had been th- I was thinking about it. I was trying to think of a counterexample in Joker, but I can't come up with one. I mean, the guy is definitely a strange, strange character, but, yeah, it's not. That's He's, not a realm that it, it, it really steps into. Like, there's this scene where you can't see anything, but he gives his mother a bath. Mm-hmm. You can't see anything. He has a girlfriend, but it, really, the, I mean, his head, that is. But they're they're just, it's like nothing happens. They're just sort of companions, and that's it. Like, it never show, does anything sexual, which is unusual for a modern comic book movie. Well, so Remember talking... when the Eternals came out, and they bragged about how this was the first Marvel movie with a sex scene? Was it the uh, first one? I, I, I somehow what came out? The Eternals? Uh, the Eternals. Uh, that's I know, not... it's hard to remember. It's not entirely true. Iron Man has it doesn't show it, but it's the beginnings of one. It's there's yeah. sort of a scene in Iron Man. Uh, there's one in The Incredible Hulk, sort of. Uh, I I can't remember beyond that, but <laughs> like you get this mental list, you're like, hmm. See, you were talking about you know, out of all the out of all the Western sort of things that you've seen, you were thinking there's only one Western produced. Uh, thing that I've seen that, that that doesn't have you know s- sexuality in it. And I thought you were going to say Bluey. Does that count as Western? It's Australian. I haven't, I haven't seen that. Um, you haven't seen Bluey? No, I don't even know what that is. That's super popular. I, I would I would put this this is on par with Veggie Tales in terms of best anime ever. Bluey Bluey is fantastic. It I I, I cannot rant and rave enough about Bluey because not only is it yeah. interesting, it's one of those shows that if my kids are watching this this thing, my kids watch a lot of. Yeah, they don't watch a lot of dumb stuff. Well, they but is, is Bluey made for children? Yes. Yes, Bluey yes, is made well, for I children. Yes, well, I said except children's media. Except children's media. Yeah, but it's there's been a lot by adults. It's, it's not just kind of well, dumb colors on the but, screen. Um, like My Little Pony. Because Puss in Boots, that. but that's degenerate now. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, um, I thought was like, that seems to be, that's an, almost entirely free of morally problematic content. That some of the philosophy you can nitpick. But the the last wish, for the most part, is like it's it's just a great example of a movie, and there's nothing morally problematic in it, uh, which is. But that's children's media. That it, like, it's strange, you know. In the past several years, some of the best media has been children's media because adult media has either been degenerate or lazy. Yeah, um, I I used to watch a lot more movies and TV shows like back in the day than I do now. Like. Most of my media consumption is on YouTube nowadays. And I think that is largely due to that. There's just not only is there not anything interesting coming out lately, there's just so many things that has a clear political slant and they're not interested in entertaining you and giving you a good story and giving you good characters. They want this to be something that influences you in a way that they see fit. Uh, you see that especially with uh, TV shows and with Marvel, Star Wars, anything that's come out that used to be popular. Actually, no, th- there is a couple of very, very minor offenses in, in The Last Wish. There's this one part 
uh, where Puss in Boots says a very, very minor prof- profanity. And later on, there's this gag where the the cute dog it lets out like a string of profanity that's all censored. But like that's incredibly minor, you know, compared to. Oh, yeah, that was fun. Much more serious uh, uh, criticisms that you can put towards most media. Oh, yeah, yeah. In most media, you'll, you're going to have the worst offenses are going to be done without, without, uh, without profanity. You're going to have, you know, the worst things being taught, said, and done without using, without using cuss words even. Yeah. And, like, and you know, I, because I thought, uh, uh, what, what was that Gibson film uh, about the priest? Father Stew or something? Like, yeah, yeah. It was a good movie, but he didn't need to have that much swearing in it. Why did he do that? He didn't need to have any swearing in it. I, I get that he was trying to he was trying to draw a, con, a contrast, I suppose, between uh, Father Stu's former life and his you know his his new life. Yeah, does it make it realistic? Just, yeah, you know, in the which, past, which I when, get. You know, in in the Bible, it says Saint Peter, he cursed and he swore with an oath. That's all it says. We know what it means. It doesn't <laughs> tell us what words he said. Like you don't you don't need, especially what, the scene where. It, when when he's telling people that he doesn't know who Christ is, the way he's phrased, it implies that he said something inappropriate. Um, or when like, Paul, when Saint Paul said that was comparing the old covenant to the new covenant, he says the old covenant was the word that he used apparently was a very. Uh, it maybe I said I've never seen that actually backed up because uh, the way that you know swear words work is a word that's inappropriate in one decade might be a swear word a hundred years later, so it. Um, See, that's the thing about language is that obviously, if we were to tell them our our swear words, if we went back in time, they'd be like, "What are you talking about? That sounds funny." Because our sensibilities have have changed. Whereas words that used to be considered incredibly vulgar, people have no problem with them now. But yeah, the the point is that I I don't know if you can necessarily demonstrate that Paul used a swear word, but if he did, it was like once in all of the scriptures. Right. Um, but it, a time I, what place. bothered me in particular is there's this scene in Father Stew where he's swearing in front of a child, and they have an actual child actor there. It's like, why do you need that? That doesn't. Why did you do that? It makes me uncomfortable that, whenever child actors have to swear. Well, the, the child didn't swear, but the, the yeah, but in general, that's kind of uh, shocking. Walmart I've seen this. I mean, I remember seeing this in the past and in, you know, on R rated movies and stuff like that, their shock value is, is, is one, either they'll have, you know, these people swearing and cussing up a storm in front of a child or two, they'll have the child themselves swearing. And, and I, I suppose like the first two, three times it happened, it, it did have that shot, that intended shock value of, wow, I can't believe that a kid is saying this, but realistically, I mean, that's, that's kind of akin to a, to abuse there is, is, I mean, obviously I expect they got the parents permission. Yeah, like, hey, I mean, can we get your kid to, uh, to to lay out all these expletives, uh, I don't. Perpetuity. I don't like it, but I also it's it's you know relatively speaking, it's not that bad because they if they already swear like that in that's just how people talk now, and that's on it's not good. But you know, on on the relative list of offenses, it's 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 a pretty minor one, unfortunately. I remember watching the behind the scenes of Logan, the X Men movie, which is a movie that I really like actually. The child actor for the, what was it, like Weapon X, she was called the Little Wolverine Girl. She wasn't allowed to watch the movie after they made it, which I think was kind of funny. But another interesting thing was that Hugh Jackman, you know, Wolverine's actor, he had to cuss quite a bit around her and he cussed at her for the scene at one point. And I remember her mom was uh, was on set and he had to go and apologize and be like, I'm sorry, miss. I'm sorry for cussing at your daughter. And... <laughs> Yeah, it's just it's just interesting when you know they have to have that dynamic, and they're basically like, "Yeah, you're gonna have an adult basically yell and cuss at you, and you gotta do this and this and this." Uh, there was a I weird Simpsons uh, moment where, um, actually, Rev Perry pointed it out, where it was the Suicide Squad uh, Simpsons video, where I think one of the characters was like, "Oh, if there is a god, then." you know, he's not here or there's so much suffering, you know, the yada yada, why do bad things happen if God is real, etc. And then CinemaSin goes out and says, oh, actually, well, the absence of suffering is not a, you know, evidence that God is not here and the idea that God would come back to end all suffering is not true. He said, it, it was it was like a completely theological yeah. answer to it and it was so weird. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's because 
That's because cinema sins are contrarian. So in a, in another episode, they criticize the Genesis story for for the dumbest possible reasons, and it's a very similar thing. Of why did God let them sin at all? It's just them being contrarian, so they pull out whatever arguments they find on the internet, probably. <laughs> Yeah. There's a, at least another, I don't remember what other episode, but there was another episode of Cinema Sins where they did a similar thing where somebody said some stupid kind of throwaway line about uh, the, the devil, some, whatever, something about getting tricked by the devil or, or the, the devil will understand or I'll sell my soul or something like that to the devil. And then the guy, yeah, the guy interrupts with like a three minute monologue about that's not how the devil works. And, and his whole thing is about uh, tricking you and deceiving you. And he gets into actual theology about it. And then he cuts back to it, which is the joke. Obviously, that they're you know that they're throwing in some kind of absurdist lines, but the absurdity there is is wow, that's actually a kind of wealthy, well thought out, well explained theological point. I think uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I doubt I doubt I mean I don't know that much about the cinema sense guys, but I doubt that they're super theologically astute. But they're I bet that lie. they have somebody like on call where they're saying, hey, this guy said this religious thing. Can you can you give a critical response to it? And and I wish I just thinking back at all the movies and TV shows and stuff where there's a depiction of a Christian character or like Christian themes or whatever. I wish, you know, Hollywood would do that. Like have have a priest, a priest, at least on on call, just call up your local parish and be like, well, hey, would a would a priest ever actually say this in a church or is this like just the most heresy? Yeah, but depends on which priest they're contacting. Yeah, and it always it's always funny because every single Christian character that I see in like media, they they say all the Christian things and they do some things that are Christian, but then it's like when they get a girlfriend, then they're like sleeping with each other on the that, third date. That it's was funny. That's oh, not in, that's not necessarily unrealistic, right? Yeah, well, but it's like it, it, it's it's so funny that they well, try to of... depict these characters as sincerely as possible. Then it's like, oh, they're just like everyone else. Like Blue Bloods, for example, uh, one of my favorite cop shows like ever. The family is Roman Catholic, like pretty Roman Catholic. And Fair throughout the show, they're like in relationships. They're sleeping with people who are not their spouses, who are not married. And so I'm just like, I don't know. It's it's very weird to me. Do you, do you remember the Simpsons when? So back back when the Simpsons was actually good. At a certain point, they uh, Ned Flanders. I mean, the whole joke about Ned Flanders is he's a Christian, but he's like a weird like evangelifish. He, he's kind of like an over the top depiction of Christianity, but um, he's supposed to be a sincere Christian. Like that's the whole thing about him. And at, at one point, they kill Maud, his wife. I think Homer ends up she gets shot with like a t shirt cannon or something, uh, and and dies. <laughs> Which was one of the funny. Well, I don't know if it was a funny. I guess it was a funny twist in the show. It was one of the one of oh, the that's hilarious. shocking twists in the show. They just kill off this character, and it's, it wasn't a joke. She's just dead, and they played it off as a joke. And Homer is never, whatever. Anyways, so they, they kill her off, and then there's a there's an episode where I don't remember what season it is, but I remember they were talking about like uh, Ned Flanders is is trying to get back, trying to get back on the market. He's trying to get past and you know try to find a, a new wife. And he wants to, you know, get a mother for his children and stuff. And it's actually like a really wholesome message, um, at that part at least. And it's depicting him, in, you know, in all these situations. He's just like the 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 perfect guy. He's got chiseled abs, and 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 he's and he's really nice to his kids, and he's really uh, responsible, and he, and he makes good money, and all these other things. And he ends up he ends up meeting uh, some female character that never shows up in any other episode after that. And go figure. First date, he goes on a picnic with her, and then he sleeps with her. And it's just kind of depicted as it's almost it's this ignorance, Hollywood ignorance of, well, yeah, obviously, you know, even Christians, everybody just, you know, you, that's what you do when you're dating somebody, you sleep with them. That's how it works. And that's, in Ned Flanders case, that's probably uh, a defect. And Blue Bloods, though, in my experience, that that's probably realistic because a, ser- a huge problem we have in the church is getting people to understand sexual morality and like actually care about it because no one cares about it. And like one of the problems we have is people want to convert to, they want to join the church and they want their sacraments, but they don't want to get married to the people that they're living with and have children with because the, they can't afford the fancy wedding they want. Yeah. We have, um, 
so I'd this, get married a, in the forest with just priests and me and my wife. Yeah, you sound, sound like an Orthodox there, Eastern Orthodox. Me and the bear and the priest and my wife. And the me and the bear and the priest with some the Disney. There's um. This is, has not happened at, at my parish, this is why I talk about it. But this is something that I've encountered before, is that there are that you've got couples, and this is a question of, of morality that they'll ask, is, is you've got, say you've got two 80-year-old, 80-year-old people, uh, a guy and a gal. They're, they're both 80, both of the, you know, each of them has had their, their spouse has died, there's no infidelity or anything like that, no divorce, it was just, you know, they're the widow and, uh, and a widower. And they start, they start living together, but each of them is kind of living off of the pension of, the you know their deceased spouse and if they get married then they then because of the legal system they lose the pension so the question that they have is is it moral to continue to to live together unmarried to avoid uh the 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 legal consequences and they just kind of assume Mm. well yeah it, it it is and part of the the difficult part of being a being a pastor uh and struggling with this is saying no just because you're 80 just because uh you've got this you've got a reason i guess to, to not get married doesn't exempt you from God's prescription for um, married couples. For us, that answer would be a bit more nuanced because we have ecclesiastical marriage distinct from civil marriage. And there are circumstances where you don't have to, where your civil marriage status does not have to correspond to your ecclesiastical marriage status because of legal technicalities. I'm not sure in this particular circumstance, but for us, it's different because we have our own laws. So, well, yeah, like not every country is going to uh, have marriage be a part of governance. That is a title that is given by the state or the governing authority. Sometimes it is literally just a institution in the church that is given by the priest or the pastor or whoever, you know, has authority there that bestows it onto the couple. So I I definitely see that. um, And honestly, I I actually prefer that. It's even in the catechism that you can get civilly divorced if it's necessary for uh, certain legal rights. Um, Because to us, well, either it wasn't a marriage at all and you're just divorcing to show it isn't a marriage, or you are still married, but you're, you're separated and for legal reasons you need to to file for divorce, and it's it's because sometimes there's that tension between what the state says and what what we believe is actually the case, and we have to negotiate. You know, it's not always clear how how it's supposed to relate because the state's concept of marriage and justice is not the same as ours. I, I think that's going to be increasingly a problem in the future when you have the state defining marriage in all these different ways. Where where they're they're defining or redefining marriage, and they're saying, well, marriage is this, marriage is this, marriage is this, and marriage is also this. At a certain point, Christians might have to start asking the question. They say, uh, "Am when I'm getting married, I'm using the Bible's definition of marriage. Do I really need to sign up also to the state's definition of marriage? Because the state's definition of marriage is so broad, it includes all of these things that the Bible explicitly forbids. Like at a certain point, the this when the state defines marriage." so sinfully, so incorrectly, uh, there could be a point where Christians say, you know what, there's, you know, we have marriage, and you have your thing, and we're not going to participate in your thing. We're going to keep getting married like we have since, you know, and since Adam and I, 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 I certainly think if if your argument is that the state has no, that they're using the word marriage entirely equivocally, and Christians can have church marriages uh, and they are married, but they're not married in the eyes of the state. I, I think at that point that that's not grave matter. That's that's a diff- That's just a, an interpretation of of what constitutes of what your obligations are when you're married. As, again, especially for us, the Catholic Church, because our marriages we consider our marriages to be above civil law. Like civil law recognizes or doesn't recognize. It might interact with our marriages, but if you're married in the church or a member of the church, you're sort of exempted from civil law in our eyes. Uh, so it's not necessarily grave matter if you just argue that um, it that you don't want to even bother with the civil thing because they're using it equivocally. Yeah, but that is I've, I've heard the Ben Shapiro explanation of, well, we should get the government out of marriage entirely. 
And no, no, no. I kind of, he doesn't say that. He he said that for a while, but he doesn't say that now. He says that oh, the, the government has a vested interest in in the procreation of children. So government should okay, be involved in marriage go. only in so yes. long as it's promoting uh, a, a lifelong heterosexual union. Right. Because but that's, that's, that's the dichotomy. It's like, would you want the state who is not in, you know, under the moral authority of of christianity or who is filled with a bunch of people who are not interested in christian morality or christian ethics or you know bestowing that onto the state like do you allow these people to define marriage for you or do you do you completely separate the concept entirely and say well you have your civil unions and we have marriage running the risk of letting marriage be further uh be it, further dispersed and eventually it, uh, disappear from the culture. I think as the laws stand now, my, uh, my tendency is if I were given, if it were a choice, leave things as they are now or get rid of state marriage entirely, I would have to get rid of state marriage entirely if it were in my power. Because right now, the laws require civil servants to grant homosexual marriages, which is immoral and by repealing the law you would be repealing that whereas by keeping the law the state is actively compelling people to commit sin hmm. i think it's similar, uh, now obviously, yeah. similar to the kind of should the state be involved in education well, in the past you can say well you know the state is competent enough to to teach education but at, at this point especially at religious education because all all education is 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 ultimately religious at a, at a certain aspect. If you're teaching about history, morality, anything like that, eventually, even science, you're gonna get, you're gonna come back to some religious aspect. And while, while in the past you could say, look, the state is competent enough to teach, you know, these these subjects. Um, but at this point, it's gotten to the point where people say, you know, well, we want to put prayer back in schools. It's like, no, we want to take schools out of the hand of government. Say, well, I want uh, the government needs to teach my children about God. I'm like, no. You don't want that because the government has no that's idea tough. who God is. <laughs> you know, that's actually my my response to the rad trads who are upset over dignitatis uh, humanae, and they're like, "How dare you say freedom of religion?" It's like, okay, so what you're saying is that the, that you want the state involved in religion, like you want the United States of America involved in religion. You trust the politicians want- to teach your children about and- religion. And obviously they don't. That's not what they want. They want them to become Catholic. But the point is, I, the way that a lot of us read Dignitatis Humanae is just as an acceptance of fact, which is that the Catholic Church has no political power. We are run by people who do not care what we say. And in that circumstance, they obviously have no authority over religious matters. And it's better for us if everyone has freedom of religion, because we're not in a privileged position anymore. It's just not, it's just not realistic. Well, it's also the culture of America itself. I think the culture of America it lends itself to just being extremely reactionary. Like yeah. we, as an American culture, we simply just hate being told what to do. Whenever the status quo changes, now it's like, okay, now we just hate you now because you're in power. You're telling us what to do, and we don't want to do that. You're you're radical using the state radical America. individual libertarianism that that's infected so many corners of american uh political thought and it's just like well we all just want to grill in our backyards and we don't want to have a thought in the world about anything and it's like that that's not how society works that's not how a community works there needs to be a awareness of the people around you and there needs to be involvement in the community around you and that requires a sense of morality to be but uh, our current government is in no position to do that. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, that, the, that we can agree on. Romans thirteen is is an interesting passage because it talks about you know because the government is would not <laughs> promote evil or whatever. It's the government the, the 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 wielder of the sword wields it for wields it for good and doesn't punish you know doesn't punish evil or um, I mean obviously you know the they punish the evil. Yeah, yeah, that is a weird chapter and it's a chapter I point to against anyone who is even slightly of an anarchist tendency is, you know that he called the Antichrist a servant of God and said to obey him because he punishes evil people? Right. He, like, you know that, ne- that the Roman emperors were the Antichrist in the early Christian thought. Like, Oh, yeah, Nero. 
And he still, the apostles still say, honor them because they're God's servants for your good. Right. It wasn't first or second Peter. Like the, the epistles of Peter were written during Nero's uh, reign. When he was in prison. Literally. When he says the church of Babylon greets you or whatever, he's, he's, speak, he's saying he's imprisoned by Nero awaiting execution by crucifixion. And he's telling people to honor the king. Well, Jesus honors both Herod and uh, and Pilate, uh, but you know. Well, not Herod really. He, he, Herod is the person that Christ is actually the harshest towards, because he only rebukes Herod. He rebukes the Pharisees several times, right. which is kind of an act of love. He rebukes Herod once, and that's only. He's not even talking to Herod. He's talking to the Sadducees, I think. And he's in Herod's presence. He just stays silent. He doesn't say anything. Uh, he had a remarkably low view of Herod, which is interesting. I don't, I'd have to, I'd have to look at the, I'd have to look at the chapter again. I think, I mean, again, this, this is, this is one of those situations where you have God standing in front of, in front of a ruler who thinks that he's hot snot, and and he has every every right to tell Herod to to shut up, and then Herod falls down like a dead man or something like that. Like that, that that could very well have happened. And and Jesus instead chooses to stay silent in front of him, uh, and yeah, I mean similar. Well, Pilate, it's more it's more clear kind of Jesus's interaction where he says, you know, you would have no authority if it wasn't given given to you. But by thereby doing, uh, he's acknowledging the Pilate has been has been given authority by God. This this person who Pilate, you know, he tries to wash his hands. He's a murderer. Uh, this this murderer has been given authority by God. Even Herod was given authority by God. It's you know yeah, obviously, but I just mean, it, but yeah, right. I just mean it is interesting. Herod is the person that Christ is like abuses the most. Like Herod is somehow the epitome of wickedness to the point that it's not even worth it's not even worth talking to or about him. He's just evil. Well, it's interesting because this is why the the deity and the messianic uh, authority of Christ was questioned so much, even by his own disciples, because in the Jewish tradition, they viewed the Messiah as someone who would come in like a flaming chariot who would, who would release the captives, the Jewish captives of their Roman oppressors, who would come and establish a new, uh, a new Israel and completely squash all the enemies of Israel and, you know, establish his kingdom on earth. When Jesus comes around, he's like, you barely see him get tangled up in the politics of the Romans. If anything, he had more to say to the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership who are being hypocrites than he did with the Roman oppression and mistreatment of his people. So to them, it's just like, well, what are you doing, Jesus? Like, why why aren't you actually doing something about the political oppression and the mistreatment of your own people, which you say you love dearly? Well, it's a contrast, yeah. I think, between Saul of the Old Testament and David. Saul of the Old Testament, if you look at the, the, the description of him, he's head and shoulders above everybody else. He's he's this figure, this, this war horse riding, uh, you know, flowing main figure of this is what they wanted as a king although that's ultimately not what was best for them david was was what was best for them in contrast to saul and jesus i think is is similar they they wanted a war horse riding uh you know king head and shoulders above everybody else to come in and stomp out the roman empire but that's not what jesus you know ultimately well that's not what he that's not what he did that's not what his goal was now revelation time period oh that's that's different. <laughs> That's when he comes around. But the thing is, he did. He comes around. He did defeat. The thing is, he did defeat the Romans. He just did it in a better way, which was, you know, he says, "Fear, do not fear the ones who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear the one who, fear the one who can kill both body and soul in Gehenna." He's saying uh, he's freeing men from the fear of the Romans. Like the, the the Romans are no longer a threat to Christians because if they kill us, it doesn't matter. We just get crowned in heaven. Like he's freed us from, from the necessity of caring about the Romans. Right. Everything for everything for the Old Testament was extremely carnal, extremely physical, but Jesus came and called us to a higher cause. He called us to the spiritual, to the metaphysical. He said, "You know, you know, do not store up treasures on earth. You know, store up treasures in heaven." You see this language all throughout the New Testament and how he talks about things on earth, which is like, 
you're going to go through suffering. You're going to go through things that are harsh, that are going to suck. But ultimately, you're not looking for anything material. You're not looking for a new king to come down and create a new earthly kingdom of Israel. You're going to be looking for something much higher. You're going to be looking for something much bigger than any of that. Because all of that is corrupted. All that which is carnal has been corrupted and needs to be made new. Yeah, the kingdom of God does not come with signs because the kingdom of God is within you. Abide in me and I will abide in you. Yeah, the danger, of course, being to fall into the Gnosticism of saying, well, that, that means, well, yeah, everything, everything, on, yeah, everything physical falls away. It doesn't necessarily mean that everything physical is, 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 is evil, a shell to be discarded. Right, that's like the, that's like, what the is Gnostics. it? There was a, yeah, the Gnostics who say, like, everything material is evil. It's always the everything. Gnostics and their, non, their demiurge and all this. It's yeah, like, I remember no, learning no, about I, that I, in uh, I wrote, uh, theology class. I will never stop uh, enjoying that the Gnostic, Gnosticism is a Jewish thing. It comes from Jewish. Uh, so they cl actually, there's claims that it was the Samaritans. Um, I, I'm not sure to what degree that's true, but it was a Jewish, uh, Jewish heresy that was picked up by by Christians. Yeah, go figure. We and it's still, it's still, in, uh, there's still Gnostic tendencies in Kabbalah. If if you read uh, what is taught in Kabbalah. There's a lot of Gnostic tendency in it. Um, not that ma the material world is evil, but in other ways. Um, yeah, it's corrupted, but it's it's still, you know, used for God's purpose. This is, yeah, I mean, I suppose the resurrection of the body is one of these things where where that that's one of the big contrasts that I see in the modern day that a lot of people think, um, you know, that the, the body is a shell. I can't, you know, how many movies and TV shows have, have kind of talked about language like that as the body is just a shell holding me back. Now I'm going to be free now that I'm free from this, free from this body, but, you know, it's going to be discarded. But the idea is that the body is raised again and perfected in some miraculous and way. You do see saints using that language, but they're talking in a context where everyone knows what they mean. Right. That they're talking about. What, what Paul calls the earthly tent, they're talking about the body of death and corruption, but it's understood that it will one day put on immortality. And it does, like, there's this song that I I want to like it, but then there's this, it, it has this deficiency of not mentioning the resurrection, because it talks a lot about the angel setting your spirit free, the bars of clay bursting open, but it doesn't mention the resurrection, and that's a, a deficiency <laughs> And, like, I know that the people who wrote it know about the resurrection and believed in it and looked forward to it, but they just they emphasize so much the freedom from the body that they don't mention the salvation of the body. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the easiest way to kind of resolve that is to point to, point to the resurrection of Christ, is that, that he was resurrected in the same body that was crucified. It wasn't that the body remained in the tomb, but that he's resurrected in the body. I mean, he retains the, the spear wound and the nail holes. This is one indicator. I mean, the absence of a body in the tomb is another indicator, but this is one of the indicators that the body does you remain. Know, it's perfected in some, you know, in the, some form. Jehovah's Witnesses' excuse for that is that um, they, well, he just manifested the wounds. They they weren't really in his body. He, he was just there for when show. he says uh, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Well, he, <laughs> he, he, he assumed flesh and bones temporarily to appear to be apostles, but really... Really, it's a spirit body. <laughs> yeah, it's spirit mm. body. And he's hey, later on grilling fish over coals or whatever, and he's like eating and, you know, on his oh, own I'm hungry. Planet. Do you have any food for my spirit body? Yeah, again, all of that they would say was just a carnal. He, he temporarily uh, assumed carnal form to appear to the apostles, but that wasn't his, his form. You know, the, the that's there somewhere in the Bible. Jeez, I, I, the, sure the mental gymnastics there. required to be like, you know what, Jesus didn't actually mean what he said. It was all... It was all a, it was all a ruse. It was all a trick. You know, he he only pretended to be hungry and pretended to have a physical body and pretended that he had these wounds and manifested these things. He's good grief, you guys. Just that's just yeah. Test. That's one of the reasons why I've had such a hard time finding like what denomination I fit into because I see it with every single faith tradition and denomination, whether Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox, is that there are things that are extremely straightforward that they can point to. And it's like, the scripture says this, the tradition says this, the council says this, and it's very straightforward. And then there's other passages where they're like, 
well, the context and the uh, the reading between the lines, and if you look at how they were talking, if you look at the person who wrote this and what languages they were familiar with and who they were talking to, and it's just like, I don't know. It's it's always interesting to me. <laughs> I, I, that's what I hear about the um, so the, the uh, there's the the passage. Reformers are the biggest nerds on that. Yeah. The. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, read um not Melanchthon, read Chemnitz on that. Chemnitz is the biggest the biggest dweeb. I can't wait to meet him in heaven. He's he's got to be he's got to be the biggest brainiac. Uh, Luther is all about fart jokes, and and Melanchthon is 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 more conciliatory. And then Chemnitz is just he's he's brutally autistic. Um, <laughs> just very just encyclopedia knowledge, but but not trying to offend people like Luther. Not trying to reconcile with people like like Chemnitz or like uh, Melanchthon, but but there's the yeah, the passages I think about are you know Paul's talking about uh, you know women should stay stay silent in the church and I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man and you know he's talking about he's talking about uh, the order the order of worship and and obviously this extends to this extends to the office of the the priest slash pastor slash elder slash episcopos slash presbyteros slash whatever you want to call it. It extends to that office as well, and and the people reading these things will say, well, you know, this is Paul. Actually, the women were just making a this racket. This is Paul saying I can beat my wife. This is Paul saying, yeah, this Ephesians 5 says I can beat my wife. No, this is Paul saying uh, that there were these congregations where the women just happened to be making a racket, and he said to, uh, you know, hold the racket till you get home, and then— uh, and make a racket at home, and, and it's just so much is read into the text to kind of deny the meaning. Uh, so yeah, for example, the text I think it's talking about uh, I do not permit a woman to have authority, whatever. Um, uh, it, it talks about Timothy, Paul uses the reference of of since Adam and Eve. Like he doesn't say because this church, you know, the the Corinthian women happen to be particularly particularly noisy. Therefore, I want them to shut up in church. No, he's he he, he says. You know, this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, and Adam was created first, and you know, kind of Adam is it's the idea that Adam is the the the, lead, the spiritual leader of the household, and it was his uh, his job to teach to teach and to preach the household. I, yeah, I find it simultaneously amusing and kind of frustrating that you know, in the modern commentaries, you have uh, say the complementary and conservative um, approach of the scriptures. It always has to be, but we're not saying this. And then you read actual historical commentaries on the passage, and there is none of that. It's all just woman taught once and man fell. You know, the uh, women are morally, uh, physically, and uh, you know they're they're inferior in both soul and body to man. One they quote the Ecclesiastes: "One man out of a thousand I have found, but one woman I have not found." Yeah, there. Yeah, there's some so savage air. church fathers on that. Like savage. And because it, it wasn't until recently that we started. Um, like you see, you see, of course, people addressing some of the arguments of women being the same nature, and what about this? And like they're not misogynistic, but that you don't have the same in like. Well, but you know, we have to make sure that we're saying that they are that like they just they just outright say that women are inferior in both soul and body, and therefore subjected to man as a punishment for Eve's disobedience. That sounds like Origin. I, I seem to remember a quote from Origin in particular. He says something. But it's all of them. It, yeah, yeah. I, I remember. I remember reading it in other ones too. But I, I think Origin's got one of the most blatant statements on something like that. I can't remember it off the top of my head. But I remember reading. It. I'm like, man, this dude. I I can understand the the surgery he went under if this is how well he got along with women. But yeah, well, allegedly um, self surgery. But the thing is, I. We get offended by that now, but I think that they were, I think that they're right. You just have to interpret it correctly, which is that what they mean by, well, obviously they're bodily inferior. That's, you can't dispute that they are physically right. inferior, but the other and thing is that they are more susceptible to emotion. Right. Yeah. And that, that also is not disputable that um, women psychologically tend to have a deontological compassionate sort of morality, whereas men have a more, more uh, utilitarian, justice-based morality, and one of those is more conducive to leadership and caring for the common good. Uh, you know, the, you, you have to have both, but that's the thing is when, when you hear, people hear the saints talking about the deficiencies of something and how one thing is better, they think that they're saying that that, some, that means like, oh, well, women are inferior and they're defective 
and that means that it's bad, but they're not saying that. They're saying God created created both for certain roles. But anytime you have this distinction in role, one of them is better. It's like they, they, they would say that the stars have more glorious bodies than we do, but we have better forms than they do. You know, like our souls are superior to the forms of the stars, but our bodies are inferior to the to the body of the stars. And they're very frank about the deficiencies of the human body and how, you know, man is prevented by his bulk from it's it's interesting to me how the way people talk, the way how frank they were about reality. Like, you know, saying man is prevented by his bulk from flying or whatever that and that the nature of the body is to deteriorate and so forth and just uh like they would acknowledge, yeah, of course it is in, in itself, women are superior in the ability to feed children, in the ability to give birth. But if you take it as a, if you take it all together as a whole, man is the more perfect sex. But it doesn't mean that women are bad. It means that they have a different perfection that is inferior. Yeah, there's, I mean, I think our automatic assumption in our society is that it's a, it's to see everything as a value judgment. If you say that men are, if you want to compare it to tools, men are, you know, men are a, a, a multi-tool. Men are something that, that fit a lot of different situations kind of generally well. But there's some spe- very specific, unique things that men cannot, absolutely cannot do, or if they can do them, don't do them well. And I don't know. There's... We see specialization as 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 a value judgment. We say, well, this this person is women great, are you know, generally better with people. Yeah. So yeah. Which is why they're so good at like jobs like such as serving at restaurants, uh community service, um what's the other one? Uh customer service. Anything that deals with people primarily. While the guys go for things like engineering. Uh I, don't know. I can't I can't say I like waitresses, but that's because I'm antisocial. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, there, I mean, you, you were talking about before. I knew you were is, afraid is of one. Due to the, um, it's so it's solo ecclesia, more like solo, uh, always alone. <laughs> so solo yourself. No, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. There's so, in terms of kind of leadership, leadership styles is that there's there's a degree where you have to be cold, calculating, and almost mechanical, rational, to be a good to be a good leader. In, in, in some and, respects, but you also need, you need advisors. You need people who can, who can communicate. You need the, you need the velvet glove to go over the iron fist. There's, you know, you can be a, a hammer in search of a nail, but there's, I mean, and that can solve a lot of situations, but there's, there are limitations to that where you need, you need a specialist. You need to call somebody in who's, who's good at, you know, who's good at something that you are not capable, capable but, um, with. The feminine role is usually more subtle and hidden. It's like Jonathan Pajot uses the example of, uh, you know, a king is in, is in his, his uh, I, f- I forget what they call their cabinet, but, you know, the king in council. And uh, he has this idea and he's made up his mind. And then the next day, mysteriously, after everyone's gone to bed, he, somehow he changed his mind and no one knows why. Well, uh, I've actually... an example of, of, of like women, women, as wives and mothers having this influence, but it's going to be a more hidden, less direct influence. It's not that they get to, to make the decisions as much as they, they get to offer the perspective and remind pe- the men of the practicalities that they weren't thinking about, like pilot's wife. I, I actually use this as an example, uh, as an analogy in a conversation that I had, I think it was just yesterday, where you have the king who's the husband, and he's the one who has the final say. He makes the decision. He's the leader. And then you have his counselor, the one who's usually his most trusted advisor, the one who is by his side, who is trusted with many, you know, functions of the of the state that he decides to leave to her or him. And she can bring her advice, which a lot of times can be more rational, can be more grounded in things that the man didn't think about, or even give an emotional perspective that, like you said, to the more cold and calculating sort of personality, uh, she could come to him and be like, well, that's not how you should go about this. There's this thing there. He could feel that way. She could feel that way, which is why I think, you know, he describes the woman in the scriptures as the crown on which, uh, at which sits on the head of the man, because 
you can you can be the leader of a state or the leader of the household and still be able to you know take take advice take some information from others and let that influence your decision making i remember hearing that um men and women on average a way that our brains are different is that men compartmentalize things you know if we're focused on on one thing it fishing or something we're focused on that thing and we're not thinking about if you ask us a question oh, about yeah. something blank women are, are different you know they think about everything as a web like it's all connected it's all together they're thinking of everything sort of at once and but the down the so the men so women have the limitation that means if something is wrong in their lives it interrupts their ability to they can't compartmentalize it because it's all connected so that something has gone wrong they can't focus on the other things because they're they're overwhelmed by that thing men can compartmentalize that but of course, the flip side of that is that men can get tunnel vision and we can be so focused on this thing and how we're going to make it great that we forget how it's going to affect something else. And so that's where, you know, for instance, a man might be, have some kind of business idea and he's going to go for it and he's going to accomplish this thing. And then his wife reminds him that he has a family and he can't actually do that because it's impractical. That, that was a funny thing that uh, Michael Knowles actually talked about, who is now becoming one of my favorite commentators on the Daily Wire, where he was talking with, uh, uh, I think it was Brett Cooper, where he said, you know, we often think of women as having the, the, less, e the less grounded, the more emotional, the more out there sort of mindset, when in reality, it's usually the men that have that mindset of, we're going to go conquer the world. We're going to go create a business. We're going to go, you know, write these epic tales. We're going to go slay the dragon, et cetera, et cetera. And then the women are like, uh, you have a house to keep, to keep <laughs> afloat. You've got, you've got a kitchen to clean. You've got some kids to take to school, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, I think that's something that we tend to not forget, but we tend to sort of, what's the word undervalue well again i i think it, it's also because in our modern culture well for one thing we've, we've actually fetishized the masculine so we we've uh we don't want women to be feminine we want them to be masculine because masculinity is better uh which is you know not that's not actual you'd think that something called feminism would care more about genuine femininity but um it's a man's world but also, I think if, if you focus so much, if you focus too much on the feminine and, and, and their strengths, you do get feminism, which is this, well, hold on, if women are more level-headed and women are more able to, uh, you know, they're, they're less angry, they're less tunnel-visioned, they're more compassionate, shouldn't women be in charge? If you, if you focus so much on the feminine strength that you, you, you get tunnel vision the other way, you start to elevate that and that's why i think historically they just sort of dismissed women in most contexts because like everyone knew that you have wives and mothers and sisters that you you go to and that they're important but but there was something about society being stronger when you just you kind no, of didn't you just didn't acknowledge the white collar like, jobs and the ceo like it's there in the chivalric tales you have you know the knight's mother who sends him off and and the damsel who gives him advice and aid but it's the man who actually accomplishes things, and it's the man who gets all the glory. But, but you know, it's the, the Proverbs of Limuel that he was taught by his mother. You know, it, there's that mention, but the credit goes to the man, but he got it from the woman. Um, and there's something yeah, there's about... There's a lot of great heroes who, There's a lot of great heroes of old literature where, you know, they actually had really good relationships with their mothers. There's an interesting um, aspect of kind of... I mean, you think about... Hollywood is downplayed as the the, um, the damsel in distress trope, but there is an aspect of of some very good stories out there where the motivating factor is is the woman. The man is able to accomplish great feats and heroic events because he's motivated by either you know by his wife, by a woman that he loves, uh, and there's a reason that this is such a such an effective you know we just take it for granted that you know this guy's going to go conquer Troy. Uh, for Helen, uh, you know that they're that they're going to go go on this uh, this quest to save to save the the damsel in the castle. And we're just like, well, yeah, I'd do that. <laughs> one of the things I love about the Passion of the Christ is that there are these times where Christ is like he he seems to be physically 
overpowered. He's, he's completely down and weak and he can't move anymore. But then his mother and his disciples show up and he sees his mother and disciples and he gives him this second strength and he's able to stand up and keep bearing, keep bearing the pain. It, it's yeah, like this, that's why he, he wasn't just letting himself be killed for no reason. Like he was doing it for them. He was doing it for that. He was saving us. And it's, it's, it's this way of showing that, that, that he was able to endure that because it was love for us. Oh, like yeah. that, that's the story is the man laying himself down for his bride. Yeah. There was a common trope in Hollywood for like a long time where it would be about a son losing his father and he'd go and, you know, become a man himself. And then there was this, there's this recent trope that I've been noticing a lot more where, you know, there's this, there's this mother who is sort of abusive or is not there for their son who is estranged from their children i don't know it's something that i've noticed a lot more in recent uh hollywood movies um whether it's something like uh oh, what was the movie that recently came out where that happened it was like a moon night moon night was one that was a show that came out where it's like this kid was basically abused by his mother after his dad died and you know, that's the reason he became, you know, so sheltered and so, um, so like pitiful. Well, Tangled, Tangled is about an abusive mother. And one of the reasons that people don't like Tangled is because, I don't know, apparently mo a lot of Americans come from like incredibly dysfunctional households. And uh, too, too so it was, too, I love Tangled. Whereas I, you know, have never experienced that. So to me, Tangled was like entertaining and I, I like, I like the, I find that dynamic entertaining, you know, in the context of the film. Yeah. For a lot of people, they couldn't. Movies. They couldn't because it was too relatable and they it was too uh, real and it just made them uncomfortable. I hope you enjoyed this episode. This was actually part two of a three-part episode. That's right. I sat down for three hours to discuss with these guys all the topics that came up. And because I'm not Joe Rogan, I didn't think that releasing a three-hour episode would get much play through. In any case, the third part of the episode, coming out next week, begins the discussion on feminism, femininity, masculinity, and what the Bible has to say about all of these things. What does it mean to be biblically masculine? What examples do we have from the Bible? So if you're looking forward to some of that and some of Sola's <laughs> takes on feminism, then stay tuned next week. Uh, and we'll kick right off and get right into it with that discussion. Take care and God bless.